Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is English Saul. I am a board member of the Saul Family Foundation and also the CEO of a company called Semantics out of North Carolina. And I cultivate my soul by putting on my headphones and blasting music as loud as I can and dancing all around my house, singing oftentimes to Taylor Swift. Dr. English Saul is a data enthusiast and researcher at heart. She holds a PhD in industrial organizational psychology and specializes in humanitarian work psychology and global health and development. English is a board member of the Saul Family Foundation and is the CEO and co-founder of a company out of North Carolina called Semantics. She is also pursuing the role of a next-gen philanthropist. She serves on the boards of Care USA, The End Fund, the African Philanthropy Forum, Carolina for Kibera, and Population Services International. English's full bio is available on our podcast website. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, English. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Melissa. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. So I'd like to get us started by asking you if you would mind sharing with us a memory or a story from your life that you feel was instrumental in shaping your view of what matters. It's so interesting to look back and think about what might have been sort of a butterfly effect moment. Growing up, I spent a lot of time actually in the hospital, in and out of a lot of medical facilities. I have cystic fibrosis and about 13 years ago had a double lung transplant. And beyond my immediate family, I was really shown and taught what caregiving looked like in that medical setting. It was a diverse kind of array of experiences in that context. There's this memory to me that just sticks out in my mind so much that I go to often. I was very young. I was on the pediatric floor and I was staying. I had a a really terrible lung infection. I just remember being really sick and I remember being in a lot of pain. My family, my parents did the best they could to be with me as much as possible. But, you know, life is life and you have to work and you have to, they had other children to take care of. And so there were some times when I was just by myself, there was this amazing nurse. And I mean, all the nurses were amazing. I have such respect and just like love for nurses because of my experiences. But there was this one nurse who um, I think she saw, I think she recognized just how uncomfortable I was and just how difficult things were. You know, she would do her shift and she was my nurse and she was taking care of me and she would complete her shift, which as anyone in the medical field knows, these shifts are grueling and taxing and hard. And she would finish. And for the time that she was on, which was usually like three days in a row, she would finish and she would come to my room and she would turn down the lights and play just like very soft, soothing music on her phone. And she would just rub my hands or rub my feet, rub my head. And, you know, I couldn't have been more than 11, 12 years old. I remember this so much because it was this beautiful act of caring and caring just simply because 
she could. You know, she knew that she had the power and the ability to sort of make me feel better. And this idea that her humanity was wrapped up in mine in that moment, it was just so selfless and wonderful. And I always think about that. And I think, gosh, I wish everyone in the world could experience that that type of just raw, selfless care. So I think that it's moments like those that have really shaped my view on, on philanthropy and on just generosity of spirit. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That is such a beautiful story and what a beautiful soul that nurse was and is. As you consider your life and the work that you do, as we heard from your bio, you're involved in so many different organizations and different types of work. What would you say you're most passionate about and what is the change that you hope to see? This is such a good question. And it makes me just really think like, what am I most passionate about? And sometimes, which feels kind of like a cop-out answer, sometimes I feel like I'm most passionate about passion and getting passionate about things. But I think at the root of that, where I really just love my work and what I get to do is because it's so much of it is centered around people. And I'm passionate about people. And I'm passionate about the ideas that people have and how I can support those ideas. You know, this idea of just humans and people reaching their full potential and being able to sort of exercise on all of their capabilities. I think that that's the thread that cuts across so much of my work is the things that really get me excited are the ways in which I can be part of helping people thrive and watching people thrive. And I think that that's really joyful for me. That's beautiful. I can already see you extending yourself like that nurse extended herself to you in your time of need. So you work on many complex issues, which we'll get a little bit more into. Before we do, I wanted to ask you, how do you nurture yourself working on such complex issues? And where do you find your sources of inspiration? You know, I'm 31. And I feel like over the last couple of years, and I'm sure that this has sort of been kind of nudged by the pandemic times that we're living in. But I, I've started to think about this a lot. You know, I feel like for me, especially like in my 20s, this idea of nurturing myself or self-care, it was always put on the back burner. And it was always one of those things that I needed to earn or, okay, like once I accomplished this, then I deserve to nurture myself. And I think realizing now as I'm as I'm getting older that like that's just that's not the case, right? You know, we have to nurture ourselves and we have to be really intentional about it. And I think that the way that I've started to really think about that and feed my soul is is trying to, I had mentioned before that I think one of the things that I love to do is just put on my headphones and sing and dance and just be myself, right? And just sort of let it go. And I think that the other thing though, is trying to lean into these moments in life that really allow you to experience the fullness of life and linger just a little bit longer in those moments, right? Like even just like the things where it's like, I'll hear my kids giggling outside of my office door. And so I'll just stop and I'll just close my eyes for a minute and be like, that's it. That's a good moment. The other day I was riding in the car with my husband and we were driving down one of those those roads where the, the sort of trees canopy over it and the sun was shining and you kind of drive down that road and then all of a sudden you get like these sort of like, it's almost like a strobe light effect through the trees and you just sort of name it and you say, look at this, this moment that we're in and be grateful for it. And I think that I'm just, I'm trying to linger in those moments longer. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. It's so powerful to pause in this present moment and appreciate the beauty and inspiration that we have around us. And it sounds like you're able to do that. Let's move into your philanthropy. I'm so curious to learn more about what you do and how you do it. My first question around that is maybe just tell us a bit about how do you spend your time? And I'm particularly interested in your role as a next gen. It's so funny. I think that this idea of a next gen, right? It's like, in some cases, it, it's like one of those kind of like interesting time bound things, right? It's so funny. And I, I love embracing it. I love, you know, this idea of, hey, what's next? What's the next generation thinking about? But I also feel like for me, even at the sort of the age I'm at, you know, I guess I would be considered a millennial, but it's almost like, okay, let's look at the next gen. I think it's a mindset of just continuing to look forward and continuing to be as open as possible to the fact that there's so much perspective. We have to be thinking about who's going to sort of move the ball forward in a way that we haven't thought about before. You know, when we think about a goal of philanthropy and, and as it ties in to this sort of next-gen idea is that, you know, you want to leave the world, you want to try to create a scenario, an ecosystem, a space, a planet where the next gen, whomever that may be for your generation, like what would it look like if they were then to be able to outdo us on every level? And I think that that's what I keep thinking about when we're talking about these generations is like, how do I contribute to a world that puts my sons and my friends' kids and every, you know what I mean? The sons and daughters that we're talking about on a platform to just do so much better. That's sort of what I think about with this idea of next gen. It's always sort of a focus on how to just keep the flywheel going of trying to make it better. Yeah, that's so interesting. The work we do at Synergos with next gen, I think we focus more on what is it that this current generation is bringing? You know, what ideas, how do they view the world? How is that different from the older generations? And I love your forward thinking approach, not only with where you stand, but really looking then for those following generations from your generation and what they need and what that could look like. So let's get a little bit more into your philanthropy. So you shared with me earlier when we spoke that you're especially interested in how industrial organizational psychology can be applied to cross-cultural leadership and workforce development within informal economies. So I'm fascinated first what that means and how that looks. So if you could tell us more about what that looks like and maybe share an example or two to help us understand that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. So my field of IO psychology, I love it because it allows me to have these tools in my toolbox around sort of understanding the various levels of people, behaviors, perspectives, and then how that meets up with systems and specifically the systems around work. And there's just so many different ways that that sort of feeds into how I hope to aid change in the world. And I think that in that context specifically, you know, I think that IO psychology is not a super old field. You know, it was sort of born out of World War II. And a lot of the main pillars of what we study in this field have often been applied to sort of the what occurs within organizations, right? The pieces of it that I specialize in 
are really a lot more of what occurs within sort of what we call humanitarian work psychology or places that maybe the four walls of an organization don't exist in the same way. But work still occurs, right? Work occurs in like throughout the world. It just doesn't always look like what we think of when we think of a sort of nine to five job in an organization. And so where I get excited is being able to apply all of these things that I have been privileged enough to learn around goal setting, around motivation, around leadership development to these informal settings and how we sort of take a look and try and wrap our arms around these very squishy concepts and make meaning out of it. That's what gets me really excited. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can see it a bit. Like I'm starting to get a clear picture knowing some of the organizations that you are involved with and that the work that they do where you wouldn't have those traditional organizational structures. So English, I want to read to you a quote that I found. You said, humanizing data to design a better community health system should be considered paramount to truly make a difference in communities. How does one do that? And can you share an example or a story of how this has helped communities? It's interesting because I found myself sort of in this space of community health, you know, at the beginning of my sort of philanthropic journey through my lens of sort of what I would, because this was when I was working on my PhD as well, and just sort of saying, hey, what a wonderful area to think about the context of IO psychology in this sort of informal health system, right? And what does that mean? What are community health workers incentivized by? What systems do we need to put in place to allow them to continue to do their work better? And through that, I also just sort of started getting really interested in understanding the data systems that existed in community health. And what was it that you know, we were collecting data on? What was it that the community health workers were collecting data on? Was there missing data? What is it that painted the picture of the current state and helped us predict a future state? And so then, you know, so my love for data and data systems arose out of that work. And when I was talking about humanizing data, I think that this was such a, such a long time ago that I wrote that. I remember, though, it was on a trip to Zimbabwe where I was working with PSI on helping put forth a data system that was trying to, just in simple terms, basically connect data that was being collected by community health workers in the field to then be able to also connect to what was going on in a clinic setting. At that time, that was not something that was really going on. And it was really important, right? Because we needed to see the whole picture of of a patient. And so if they would go to the clinic, there'd be one picture in the field, there's another picture. And so be able to connect that data is crucial. But in this context, you know, and speaking as someone who loves data, I love data and I love being able to analyze it and understand it and detect patterns. And I think it's a wonderful tool for us to be able to help describe a situation. But sort of the nature of data, especially quantitative data, is also to help us simplify right? It's sort of to help us sort of take out the noise and try and understand what are the really important sort of components for us to view and then sort of make a decision about. Sometimes we have a tendency to maybe oversimplify. And it's important to remember that each data point that we look at is often a person. And I remember having this conversation, I think it was with a community health volunteer named Fiona, And I was learning so much about her 
what she was motivated by, what she wanted. She said, you know, I really want a t-shirt that tells people that I am a community health volunteer so I can wear it around so that people can know that they can come to me. And there was just so much unique information there that would never have been represented in my data set. So for me, what that was really about was making sure that we do both. We have the data and we can identify patterns and we can really see some of the very sort of clear cut things that are happening. You know, data helps us know that we're doing what we say we're doing, but don't forget to go back to the human piece. Don't forget to ask the questions about the person that help paint the whole picture. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. I feel like I have a much greater understanding now of this connection and the work that you're doing. What do you feel are the greatest tensions in philanthropy right now and your thoughts on what can be done to address them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the tensions that I run into most often, and I'm guilty of it myself, is you know I think that more and more the complexity of our systems, the complexity of our problems, and quite honestly, the complexity of people is becoming more apparent in our world. We live in a time where one size fits all and silver bullet solutions are not going to get us where we need to go. And I think that there's a tension of being really intimidated by the complexity horizon in a way that sort of just makes us it paralyzes us in some ways where we don't want to go forward to sort of say, there's actually a whole problem here. And while this solution might be fit for this portion of it, we need to think about what is the system. We need to think about what is the entire unmet need and work to solve that. And it's many complexities. But some of this, like some of the tension here is that I think a lot of our measurement tools are not able yet to wrap their arms around the outcomes that occur when you actually address various elements of a complex system. A lot of our measurement tools were looking at successful births, or we're looking at decreased rates of HIV. And those outcomes are really important to measure, but there's an entire system surrounding how we get to those outcomes that are much more around sort of process and trying to identify various proxy indicators that maybe look at how successful the system is to achieving that outcome. I think one of the tensions is just that we understand and we see the complexity, but we need more tools and we need more patience to wrap our arms around it and address it and fund it and think about various solutions to go forward and try and solve or help solve some things. No, that's so true. These issues are complex and they are not simple solutions. And oftentimes in philanthropy, you know, we want to do good and we want to help. And it's not easy in these complex systems. So what would you say if I would ask you, this is kind of a big question. What would you say if I asked you, what is your ultimate vision for the work that you're doing and the impact you hope to achieve? It's such a good question. And it's like, it's all encompassing. Going back to some of the stuff I mentioned previously, I think that people for me are the ultimate sort of metric of success. And someone said to me once, you know, you make change in the world by changing the way that people see themselves. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that my ultimate success is being able to help people better see themselves as part of a broader change, see their role as valuable and contributive to 
the change that we want to see in the world. I don't know that I'm going to see this ultimate change or this ultimate level or state of prosperity and peace and love in my lifetime. And that's okay. You know, and I, I think, you know, my friend, I have a good friend named Dar Vanderbeck, and she always quotes this. And she says, it's a quote from the Talmud that states, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And I think for me, that's, that's success. I think you get up every day and you try and you just don't abandon it. Just keep going. And that's what I hope for everybody. I look at these amazing change makers in the world and I'm just sitting here and I'm like, how can I do better to enable them? How can I do better to make sure they don't abandon it? That's the hope. Those are beautiful, powerful words. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing the work that you are doing. If people want to learn more about this, either this field or the work that the foundation is involved in, is there a place you can recommend that they go to? Oh, yes. I mean, I would say one of the things that gives me the most joy in life also is the work that I've been able to do with a friend, mentor, and colleague, Jeff Walker. And, you know, we've co-authored a few pieces in Stanford Social Innovation Review. So I would definitely suggest that folks check those out because there's some really great examples there of, of some systems change work and some great systems catalysts. Check out the work of African Philanthropy Forum and Infund and CARE and PSI and just like so many people out there doing amazing work. And on Saul Family's website, we also have some links to some of our grantees and the folks that we're supporting. I think that there's just so much good work out there that's going on. There is, yes. And those are quite a few resources too that people can check out. So it's great to know that the resources exist and can support all of us in learning more and also partnering up and contributing to this work that you're doing. So I just want to thank you then for coming on and sharing this. It was so interesting. I am definitely better educated in what industrial organizational psychology is and how it can be applied to unstructured systems. So thanks so much. Of course. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's, that was really fun. It was really great to reflect on some of these questions. Great to have you. What I love about this episode with English was learning about her personal experience and the selfless care she received from a nurse and how that set the stage for her to dedicate her philanthropic work to helping others around the world.